0: Valerie's my mother's name. Rush is for white
1: suburban boys.
0: Anybody remember cassettes? My tumor was the Beyonce of uterine fibroids. This is the
1: soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. Hey there, this is the soundtrack series. Stories about songs, the soundtrack to our lives, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Dana Rossi. Well, 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 I'm just having a string of good hair days. And that's it. That's, that's all I really had to tell you about that. I just, I've just i been very pleased with my hair for the last couple of days. And it's, it's never usually like that for this many days in a row. So I'm taking it as a good sign. Anyway, how are you? Oh, good. Actually, we had such a great show at Videology this last time that we did. again. We did another show with Bonnie and Maud, the film podcast. And so we talked about musical moments on film. But this time, the theme was remakes, sequels, and second chances. And it was so great. And people talked about, my God, uh, this one guy talked about a movie that he actually made. And then in production, somebody showed up at his door who had been in an accident and had blood running down his face. It was crazy. We did not think the story was going that way. Then another guy talked about, The scene in The Wedding Singer, where Adam Sandler's friend says that he's not happy being with a different girl every night, that he's miserable. Really amazing story about Casino Royale. Just, it was an all-around great time. And we love doing shows with them. And in fact, we are going to do another one. Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day is a Saturday night in 2015. And for all of you out there who hate Valentine's Day and hate everything that it stands for, well, this year it's on a Saturday night. So you have that to hate, too. And so those... Two hates together should cancel each other out and some sort of love should come out of that. I don't know. You know what? Just why not join us for the show that night at Videology where maybe we'll talk about rom-coms. Maybe we'll just talk about super sexy movies. And you know what? We haven't figured it out yet, but we know we're going back there. But this was just a really fun show. I actually, for that show, I talked about music videos that... Remake movies. And I'm not talking about Thriller, which is its own movie. And I'm not talking about like the lazy movie video. So clips of Desperately Seeking Susan sprinkled throughout the video for Into the Groove, or clips of The Bodyguard sprinkled throughout I Will Always Love You, or clips of Dirty Dancing sprinkled throughout She's Like the Wind. That's the, you know, the Triple Crown. Where the person singing the song also stars in the movie, so let's put the movie starring the singer in the video, so that nobody forgets that showbiz is just a big circle jerk. But I'm I'm not talking about that actually, uh, and I'm and I'm not talking about the whole like Celine Dion singing on various parts of the Titanic, or Seal singing in front of the glowing Batman symbol, or Brian Adams singing in the middle of Sherwood Forest. Like where the person singing the song is not in the movie. So you just kind of put him in the movie via the video that's also just showing clips of the movie throughout. So I'm, I'm not talking about that either. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about music videos that straight up remake movies to, to serve their purposes of video. Something like Fancy by Iggy Azalea that is a straight up three minute clueless or something like Everybody Hurts by R.E.M., that's kind of a nod, a tip of the hat to Fellini's Eight and a Half, Of course, because R.E.M., a band that expects us to very seriously digest lyrics like, life is bigger than you and you are not me, that band's not going to remake Uncle Buck, you know? So that kind of stuff. But in preparing for this, that I thought, oh, I'm going to talk about, you know, music videos that remake movies, I went back and watched very closely the ones that that I was picking to do you know and just kind of combing through like you know what is it I'm gonna pick to talk about and two videos jumped out at me that you know it's like you you watch something as a kid and maybe you watch it over and over as a kid and then you have your ideas about it as a kid and then you go back and watch it as an adult and immediately something else hits you in that video and that can be anything that can be a movie that can be a TV show whatever but two videos that I watched to write these bits where I found something now that I never noticed before. Okay, first one, the video for this song. Now, you may remember the video for this was Rebel Without a Cause, but the thing is, when I first saw this video in 1991, I was 12, so I thought it was Grease, and I, I didn't know Rebel Without a Cause, I had never seen Rebel Without a Cause, and and that's what, you know, the video is doing. And they really want to accurately imitate Rebel Without a Cause, even while using floppy-haired, point-break-era Keanu Reeves. So, they're getting close, but not that close. They include what they feel to be the important scenes, the observatory scene, the tire-slashing scene, the chicken game scene, of course, and we'll get back to that in a minute, the let's hang out in this abandoned mansion, talk about our feelings, all represented in this video. There's just one tiny problem. Like I said, I'd never seen Rebel Without a Cause. Never. So, in that iconic chicken game scene, I was unclear as to why Buzz, you know, the one that's not Keanu Reeves in the Rush Rush video, would just keep driving over the cliff. Keanu Reeves jumps out of the car, Well, why doesn't the other guy jump out of the car too? And that had always really Puzzled me. It was like, was he distraught because his woman was making eyes at somebody else? And or was he just like crazy? Just a true wild man, like fully committed to being the most unchicken and good for him. And I just I never knew. It it actually, to be honest, to me, it always looked like the latter. Because the face that he makes in the video, the face that he makes as he's going over the cliff, just this wild frontier kind of laugh. And so I just I just figured that Keanu Reeves part. That he was just the smarter guy. And that the message was, smarter wins, smarter gets the girl. But that's the problem. The problem is that in the video for Rush Rush, which aims to accurately imitate Rebel Without a Cause, they don't include the shot where Buzz gets his jacket sleeve caught in the door handle. His jacket gets caught in the door handle, and so he can't jump out. He wants to jump out because, duh! But in this video, there is no shot of a jacket caught in a door handle, no where, no how. They are sure to include the shot of the comb in his teeth, the precise angle of the knife slashing the tire, the swirl of Paula's skirts as as she runs after the cars, but no shot of a jacket getting caught in a handle preventing him from jumping out of the car. So that when you're 12, like me, and this video is very unfortunately your introduction to this iconic scene, you just think that Buzz wanted to go over the cliff, was kind of crazy suicidal in that way. I, that's, that's, that's one teensy, tiny, crazy important shot. I'd even say it was the key to understanding the tone of that entire scene. But I guess, I, I guess in the video for Rush Rush, they had no room for shots like that little minor details because they needed as much room as possible for shots of Paula Abdul doing like her Martha Graham dance with the scarves and the cat fur bra and of course a shot of Keanu Reeves rubbing his face on a bottle of milk. So I'm glad I finally know the answer now. Now the other video that I watched over and over again as a kid and now I saw something completely different as an adult was this. the video for this donna finally copying to everybody saying she's like marilyn monroe and doing her nod to diamonds are a girl's best friend from gentlemen prefer blondes now i and i always knew that this video was supposed to be a marilyn monroe thing like even as you know whatever i was a six seven year old kid i i might not have known well specifically this is diamonds are a girl's best friend from gentlemen prefer blondes but i knew that it was supposed to be a marilyn monroe thing That's kind of all I knew. I knew I knew this is supposed to be Marilyn Monroe, and I knew I wanted a dress like Madonna had with a big butt bow. But that's pretty much what this seven-year-old got from this video. And honestly, from that point on, that is what stuck with me up until watching it very recently in the last two weeks when I saw that, holy crap, this video is about stalking. So... When you watch it from the beginning, and, and you should, watch it right now. You're not doing anything. You're sitting around watching Gilmore Girls. So pull up the video for Material Girl and watch the original video. It begins with a guy. See, the big time, this big time Hollywood director. And he's talking to his producer, or whoever it is. And he's watching this video of Madonna to the Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend thing. And he really wants to meet her. And he says, bring me that girl. And, you know, the producer just keeps talking. But he thinks... I'm going to get her, and she's going to be mine. So he starts stalking her. He follows her. He lurks in stairwells. He eavesdrops on her phone conversations, enough to know that she told her friend that she was talking to on the phone that this other guy was trying to win her and impress her by buying her expensive gifts, and she didn't like all that expensive stuff. So this big-time Hollywood director, he pretends to be a janitor now, you know, in the brown one-piece janitor-like rave suit, whatever, and now is still kind of lurking around where she is, you know, the, the lot where she comes out to get into her car, and he's just sort of standing there pretending to be a janitor. And then at the very end, he presents her with a bouquet of wilted daisies, and she is completely charmed by this A because she doesn't know he's been following her all this time and B because she thinks ah Finally what I've wanted all along this really simple down-to-earth guy with a blue-collar kind of job who has his priorities straight and a goatee and he's gonna treat me right and so she decides to go out on a date with him and the last two shots are him just holding the passenger door of his truck open and her getting in and him closing it and then you know he goes around to the other side and they drive off and then the last shot is the the, both of them kind of making out you just see it behind a window that looks wet like it's almost like you're standing outside while it's raining watching Madonna and a janitor make out and oh my god for the first time since seeing this video when I first saw it when I was six years old I thought that the next logical shot after that after seeing what this story really was the next logical shot should have been the one from her video for Bad Girl where she is strangled with her own pair of stockings on her bed. Just like eyes still open but completely dead and she's just this cold blue corpse because he had been stalking her this whole time. I'm, I, I don't mean to be a downer, but just, just please trust me. I, I, watch the video again and, and you'll see it like I saw it. I think. Maybe you won't go to as dark of a place as I did, but you will see he was following her. I don't know. I love revisiting videos from my childhood, whether it was something I distinctly remember seeing for the very first time, or whether it was a video that just seemed to be in heavy rotation whenever I would watch overnight MTV waiting for one particular video, and then they always seemed to be playing Life is a Highway by Tom Cochran. Please stop playing this. But sometimes I just wish. It's like, why can't every video be the same no matter what age I watch it why can't every video be the exact video in every way that I saw when I was six when I was 12 when I was 17 I guess what I'm saying why can't every video be smack my bitch up Wrong though. This video was crazy because in the end it's revealed like all these despicable things are being done by, oh my god, it's a girl. But still, even watching that video as an adult, adult now, it's like, nope, I remember you exactly like this, 1998. All right, our story for this episode is from senior editor at Marie Claire, Whitney Joyner, who, by the way, is also one of the co founders of The Recollectors, a fantastic online community where people who have lost parents to AIDS share their stories. And so this is Whitney's story about her father, who died of AIDS in 1992, and how years later, she and her brother were able to properly honor his memory.
0: Am I right? Am I wrong? Or am I just dreaming? Climbing up the back stairs, there's a chill wind in the air. So I'm sure as many of you know or have experienced, often after a divorce, kids end up choosing one parent over another, right? I chose my father. So in many ways, this was by default. My younger brother and I didn't live with him. After my parents split up when I was nine and Drew was four, we moved with our mother who was a middle school teacher to a small town outside of Louisville, Kentucky, leaving dad in another small town outside of Lexington where he taught business law at a local university. So he didn't have to deal with the messiness and the discipline of our day-to-day lives, making sure we were ready for school, signing our permission slips, taking us to piano lessons, grounding us for talking back. And while mom had a new husband who we couldn't stand and who couldn't stand us, dad never had a new girlfriend. He never dated at all. But he also seemed more interested in our lives than mom did at the time in introducing us to culture and history and politics. He took us on vacation, to museums, to classical music concerts. Every other weekend, my parents would trade us off. We'd meet in a parking lot in Frankfurt, halfway between Louisville and Lexington. In the dark, on the way back to Dad's house, we'd listen to his favorite cassette tapes, which became our favorites, too. George Michael, Modern English, Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals, In <laughs> Elton John, and this new band that Dad had discovered and loved, Erasure. I want to play you something, he said one night on the way home, and he popped in a dubbed cassette of Erasure's chorus. He fast forwarded to Am I Right, a melancholy song about a man searching in vain for his lost lover in the city where they first met. Isn't this beautiful? At the time, I was about 12, and I didn't know the singer was singing about a man. I didn't know any gay men. And as we continued to listen to Erasure more than any other band for the next two years, I never realized that the songs were explicitly, clearly, obviously about men. Men loving one another, betraying one another, breaking hearts, winning each other back, facing each other without shame. They were just infectious, but not mainstream pop songs to me. A sign that the alternative music that I was reading about each month in Sassy (laughs) really, really was taking over because even my dad was into it, even here in small town Kentucky. So meanwhile, we periodically accompanied accompanied our father to the doctor with this mysterious blood problem that we never talked about. And every once in a while, he was saying these strangely uncomfortable and slightly scary things like, if anything ever happens to me, you'll be taken care of and he bought a cassette of Red Hot and Blue, a tribute album of Cole Porter covers. It was like the first Red Hot album they had. I remember him saying, the proceeds go to AIDS research. And I thought, oh, that's cool. But it was weird because my dad had never seemed interested in AIDS research before. And in the past, he'd said these homo- he'd said homophobic things every once in a while. So I thought, oh, this is so cool. My dad's like turning around and you know coming coming to the liberal side. This is great. And also among our VHS copies of Batman and Parent Trap and Ferris Bueller's Days off, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which were the movies, the only movies we had at his house, and the movies that we watched over and over again on hot summer afternoons, safely cocooned inside our air conditioning. There was this boring-sounding movie for grown-ups called Longtime Companion. And I remember, what's this? I asked him once, holding it up. Oh, he waved it off. I used that in class, he said. That doesn't sound like a legal film, I thought. But I didn't ask any further. In 1992, two years after my father first played chorus for us in the car, he passed away in the Lexington Hospital. And for a long, long time, I didn't feel safe to talk about him around my mother, and my other family to admit that I loved him or missed him or felt anything except anger toward him. He'd lied to them about his sexuality. He'd horribly manipulated my mother in all sorts of ways that I still don't know to this day. There was a sense of relief in my house that he was gone, that this embarrassment was gone. I'd just started my freshman year at this homophobic, (laughs) racist, honestly, rural high school outside of Louisville, and I immediately just threw myself into school, into my first serious relationship, and racking up all these after-school activities so that I could get the fuck out of Kentucky as soon as possible, and away from my stepfather and my mother. But every once in a while, when I needed to secretly cry about him, where I wanted to remind myself how much I loved him and why, I'd listen to Erasure. And I'd think about driving around Lexington in dad's old black BMW when I didn't know he was dying, when we car danced, (laughs) and he waved to strangers like he was imitating Queen Elizabeth. (laughs) And I'd feel ashamed for our shame, and ashamed that I wasn't there for him more in those last months. And it would take many, many years before I would realize that I just didn't know how. So in 2005, Erasure went on tour. It had been 13 years since dad died. We still barely talked about him. When I brought him up, I felt my family's eyes rolling. Can we just forget about this? Forget he existed? He made them uncomfortable. He reminded them of the years they wanted to erase. I'm not even sure we visited his grave. He was buried hours away from my mother's house in Paducah, Kentucky, near his family, who we'd lost touch with at the time. So in all of those years, I never celebrated him in any way because I never felt like he was worth celebrating to anyone but me. His birthday would go by, the anniversary of his death, World AIDS Day, they'd all come and go, and I would think, I should do something. I should do something to commemorate my father. And then I'd have this voice in the back of my head thinking, stop making a big deal about this. But this, I could do. I could go to this show. Because I loved Erasure too. And seeing Dad's favorite band in his stead, I mean, who could argue with that? And nobody would have to know. It would just be me and my brother and my father's spirit. So nervously, I asked my brother if he'd want to come to New York. I offered to pay for the tickets. He was still in college in DC at the time. He's studying for finals, Mom said. I don't see why this concert is so important. So by this time, I knew that Erasure was known as a gay band, but I'd never seen photos or seen any video. So it wasn't until Andy Bell walked out on the Irving Plaza stage wearing nothing but a white diaper (laughs) (laughs) and massive angel wings (laughs) that my brother and I realized exactly how gay (laughs) they were and what we were about to see. And what was happening on stage was such a spectacle. It was so amazingly awesomely proud and unashamed and was so joyful and celebratory, the opposite of the undercurrent of our daily lives growing up and after his death. It was the gayest thing we had ever seen. (laughs) I actually went to Smith College, so maybe it wasn't the gayest thing I'd ever seen. (laughs) But it was the gayest gay male thing I'd ever seen. (sighs) And to think how much dad loved this band. And to know later, we found out later, that he'd been active in the club scene in Lexington and Louisville, where he must have danced to these songs and cruised to these songs and fucked to these songs or whatever he was doing to these songs. And to think of how he denied his homosexuality until he died, to me and to my mom and whoever else, this whole like, I'm not gay, I'm just HIV positive in the 80s and I love all these gay things. (laughs) So we danced to drama and to stop and to victim of love and to who needs love like that and to all of our favorites. And Drew and I kept looking at each other with these huge smiles and shaking our heads at how funny it all seemed and just how wild it all was. Like, this is so gay and it is so amazing. For the first time, we saw this new facet of our father's personality. Like maybe he wasn't always the uncomfortably repressed, angry, but loving man that we had remembered. That if he reveled in this music so much, I mean, maybe I'm making huge leaps here, but still, if he reveled in this music so much, which was so open and honest and proud and gay, (laughs) and he shared it with us, maybe he wasn't just a sad, repressed man who never came out. Suddenly, all his idiosyncrasies came together through a camp lens in a way they never had before. And I said to Drew, I kind of think dad was a huge southern queen. (laughs) I mean, there had to have been a part of him that was joyful and free somehow and okay. Even through all the gothic repression and secrecy and disease and death. And maybe he only found that on the dance floor. And I have no idea. And I'll probably never know. But I did know the words to almost every song. And when we left that night sweaty and wrung out something had transformed within us. And we left with a fuller picture of the possibility of who he was and a sense of magic and light and release. Those songs were beautiful and Andy Bell was beautiful. And we had finally celebrated our father in a way that felt true and real and meaningful. And I thought back to 1992 when we stood by dad's grave at the funeral that he had planned for himself Where we sang Amazing Grace, and everyone I imagined wished they could have been anywhere but there. And to me, that night, 13 years later in Irving Plaza, that was the real memorial, where my brother and I got to remember the person we loved deeply and truly, and we left feeling proud and a little less burdened, and like maybe somehow we knew our father just a little bit more. Thanks. Till it starts again. in the water, floating off Paper in the gutter.
1: Yes, the beautiful, the amazing Whitney Joyner. And remember, as I was saying before, Whitney is one of the co-founders of The Recollectors. And it's this online community of people who have lost parents to AIDS. And they share their stories. They just launched this year, just this past summer. And it's, it's really wonderful. I, I, I follow them on Facebook. You can follow them on Facebook. It's The Recollectors, R-E-C-O-L-L-E-C-T-O-R-S. And they're a wonderful group with powerful and beautiful stories. Check them out. And that's it. That's our episode for this go-round. This has been the Soundtrack Series. And as always, find us on Twitter, find us on Facebook. And if you don't know this already, we are on iTunes. In the big, yet very cozy American public media house as part of Infinite Guest. So if you have a minute and you're feeling clicky, give us some stars, a rating if you like what you hear. And hey, leave a comment. Tell us what you're thinking. We always love hearing from you. This has been the Soundtrack Series, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. Thanks for listening.